Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But before it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as a kind of microcosm of European history. Here you can listen to the city grow, chronologically, from the Romans to our present time. What will it be about this time? We used the last episode for a little review of Frankish Cologne. This time, however, we are moving forward in our telling of the history of the city of Cologne. We haven't quite finished with Archbishop Bruno yet. The episode we have already made about him was rather marked by his role as a prince of the empire and his own person. But what traces he has left in our city until today, that has been too short. So let's dive into the Cologne that Bruno, Archbishop of Cologne, ruled in the middle of the 10th century. Off to the intro. When Bruno became Archbishop of Cologne in 953 with the help of his royal and then later imperial older brother Otto I, he had acquired an enormous amount of power. For at the same time, he was also the Duke of Lorraine and thus ruled almost the entire rich western part of Otto's empire. It may sound strange to us that there was no strict separation between state and church, but in the sense of that time, this was completely normal. A bishop was just as well expected to work to enforce the order on earth willed by God, even by secular means. The kings and emperors in turn also saw themselves in the tradition of a biblical David, who was king but was also a servant of God. Hence also always the closing of ranks of the Christian rulers with the Pope in Rome, at least until the Reformation. The fact that Bruno accumulated this accumulation of power in the 10th century was therefore not a scandal but a logical development which had already developed over the previous centuries in the empire, as also shown here in the podcast. Only much later, in the time of the Enlightenment, this mixture of secular and ecclesiastical power was to come under criticism. The archbishop, duke and city ruler of Cologne therefore wanted to see this, Bruno's fullness of power immortalized in the cityscape. This was accompanied by a lively building activity that Cologne had not seen since the end of Roman times. One example is the church of St. Pantaleon. We had already illuminated the church here, in the episode about the Cologne churches in the late Merovingian period. In earlier Roman times, a Roman villa had stood here. It was located directly southwest of the city and at that time still outside the Roman city wall. In the 12th century, St. Pantaleon would then be integrated into the city with the construction of a much larger medieval city wall, which immensely expanded Cologne's urban area. In the 10th century, however, the church belonged to the city but was located directly in front of its still ancient Roman city walls. Nowadays, it can be found in the immediate vicinity of Barbarossa Platz Square. 
It was probably here in the church of St. Pantaleon that Bruno received his initiation into the episcopate in 953. He noticed the deplorable and dilapidated condition of this old church. In 955, he therefore found a monastery with Benedictine monks here. For as you know, with a monastery often came many donations, rights and economic income. So Bruno breathed new life into this place. For as you know, with a monastery often came many donations, rights and economic income. So Bruno breathed new life into this place. Not only that, Bruno later had himself buried in the crypt of St. Pantaleon. I don't know how to pronounce this Greek word in English. Sorry, I pronounce it German. Pantaleon. Pantaleon? I have no idea. At his death, Bruno bequeathed a large fortune to the Benedictine monastery he had founded. This ensured that a new building of the church could be started. However, Bruno logically did not live to see the completion of the church that happened in 980. The new church of St. Pantaleon was first built as a pure hall building. Thus, at first glance, the church building looked more like a medieval palace of a king, you know, like in Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings. And this was no coincidence as the deceased archbishop wanted the place of his final rest to illustrate his spiritual and especially his temporal power and his closeness to the imperial power. This church building, initiated by Bruno, can still be seen today. But even though, despite destruction during the Second World War, the former hall building is still standing. It is hardly recognizable, though, because numerous extensions, rebuildings and additions, especially the large west wing with two slender towers, have pushed this part of the building into the background visually. A famous Cologne woman was to be responsible for the first major expansion of the church a few years after Bruno's death, but more about that later. But I managed to get a good snapshot for social media, so from this perspective, this palace look can still be seen. Check back in the days when I post it, or on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. I would also have liked to visit Bruno's sarcophagus in the crypt of St. Pantaleon. For this, I was there only a few weeks ago to prepare for this episode mentally. You know, when you go to those places you talk about, you are more motivated after all. Well, and I used to live practically around the corner and, as I said, St. Pantaleon is my baptismal church. But unfortunately, even a church that is over a thousand years old needs renovation every now and then. And this is currently taking place on a very large scale. You can enter the church, but the crypt, the choir room and the also mighty west wing of the church with the sarcophagus of an important Cologne woman, whom we will soon meet in the next episode, are currently not accessible for at least a few years. I just have no luck with historical places in Cologne that I mentioned on the podcast. Hmm. Maybe I'll ask the parish of St. Pantaleon if I can go in there. Maybe on the weekend when the work there is at rest and I drop the hint that this is my baptismal church, maybe this will open their hearts for a visit in that church. Maybe. 
a new church building that Bruno had begun during his lifetime, but whose completion he would not live to see, is the church of Sankt Aposteln, or of St. Apostles. But please let me say the German name, Sankt Aposteln, please. You know, it's named after the guys who ran around with Jesus, the Apostles. This church was also in front of the city wall. I think I say it far too often here, but until the 12th century, the Roman wall would continue to stand. And so Bruno had the church of Sankt Aposteln built here directly in front of the western gate of the city. Today, this imposing church is located on Neumarkt Square, Cologne's largest square in the city center. Sankt Aposteln is really an impressive building, flanking east towers, triconch, octagonal crossing tower, etc. Really a great Romanesque church building. But here comes the but. <laughs> this is the successor building built only a few decades later after Bruno's death, which stands here today. In Bruno's time, a simple church with modest dimensions was built here. It is so modest that it was probably co-administered by the time by the convent of St. Ursula in its early phase. So we will return to this church soon because, you know, the successor building will be built here soon. But for now, we will leave it at this first mention. And there's another example that I would like to add. In the immediate vicinity of the old cathedral, but also directly in front of the northern city gate of the Roman city wall, there was also a church. Bruno founded a monastery here. He brought the necessary monks for it from St. Mary in the capital because he renewed the ladies' convent there at St. Mary in the capital at that time, which Plectrudis, you might remember her, had founded here probably 200 years earlier. Probably a church of modest dimensions already stood here when Bruno founded that monastery here. In order for the monastery to be able to call a respectable monastery its own from now on, Bruno had the church rebuilt and gave it St. Andrew as patron saint, or as we would say in German, Sankt Andreas, and, or San Andreas. And no, this has nothing to do with the computer game. St. Andrew's still stands today in the direct vicinity of what is now Cologne Cathedral. Today's building, however, is also a successor building from the 13th century, which then additionally received numerous conversions in the course of time. We will come to those, of course, as soon as the time has come. Here lies buried one of the most important scholars of the Middle Ages, Albertus Magnus. Although literally located in the shadow of Cologne Cathedral, St. Andrew's has great significance for the city's history, like Albertus Magnus, who, who we will meet later on. The piety of Archbishop Bruno is expressed in many historical written sources. The building activity and foundations for new monasteries and churches were of course an expression of this. You might actually have thought that Bruno, despite his numerous tasks and challenges as Duke of Lorraine, hardly got to 
sufficiently fill his spiritual office as priest and archbishop. But think again, because Bruno was besides his piety among other things also the relic collector of his time. Under Bruno's reign, not only Cologne's churches were rebuilt or expanded in a large scale. As already mentioned, Bruno also expanded the monastic schools in Cologne and thus made Cologne a great center of education. Above all, the archbishop had numerous relics, religious artifacts and treasures brought to Cologne. On the one hand, there is an artifact that can be seen to this day in the Cologne Cathedral treasury. Anyone who has ever been there in the Cologne Cathedral treasury knows the atmosphere there. For the most part, the respective exhibition rooms below ground are illuminated by only a little light. This is because all the gold and precious stones that can be found there generate their own light. But the most valuable relic is quite inconspicuously located directly in a room at the entrance to the cathedral treasury. At first sight, a modest item compared to the rest of the artifacts presents itself here. The Staff of St. Peter. A wooden staff with just comparatively modest motives compared to all the gold and glitter of the rest of the Cologne Cathedral treasury. The pommel is made of ivory, which probably dates back to the 4th century. Together with the chains of St. Peter, which can still be seen today in a golden vessel in the cathedral treasury, these two relics were among the most important relics in the city until the arrival of the bones of the three holy kings in 1164 that you can still see nowadays in a big golden shrine in Cologne Cathedral. Bruno had this staff of the Apostle Peter brought from Metz to Cologne. Of course, Bruno could only dare to do this because he was also the Duke of Lorraine. Because actually the diocese or the bishopric of Metz was under the supreme administration of the Archbishop of Trier and not that of the Archbishopric of Cologne. So, so normally Bruno would not have a say in this, but as a Duke of Lorraine and brother of the Emperor he could. According to legend, Cologne's first known bishop, Maternus, whom we met in an earlier episode, was brought back to life by this staff after he fell down dead from an exhaustion during a journey. Since then, however, the staff had somehow come to Metz, but Bruno brought it back into his possession and bequeathed it to the Archbishopric of Cologne. Well, you may say it's only a staff, but just to explain this again from a theological point of view from that time, the Catholic Church bases its legitimacy on the fact that St. Peter was commissioned by Jesus himself to found a church. In this way, Peter, who is now considered to be somewhat historically proven and who fell victim to the first great persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire around the year 64 AD, is considered to be the first pope by the Catholic Church. So can you imagine what significance it had in a deeply Christian world to call the staff of Peter your own? Thus Bruno and after him all the other archbishops of Cologne could also claim, as archbishops of Cologne, to have a direct and unbroken line to the apostle Peter himself through the very staff that once resurrected Maternos to life. 
not surprisingly because the bishopric of Cologne probably came into being in late antiquity, several centuries after Peter. Martinus himself would never have met Peter because of the 250 years between them. But in the world of the Christian Middle Ages, this was definitely something that gave you enormous importance. A sense of time didn't really exist back then anyway. What had been 10, 20 or 100 years ago? For most people, life was an eternal repetition of the four seasons. Spring, summer, fall and winter. And then all over again. And yes, I will be happy to post the staff of St. Peter on social media and on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. Likewise, Bruno had many bones or at least parts of bones of saints brought to Cologne. Even just a little splinter of bone possessed the same degree of sanctity as a whole corpse of a saint. Thus, relic fragments were enthusiastically traded throughout Europe. We will come to the trade in relics in detail in a separate episode sometime, since Cologne will participate there vigorously. But here only how bizarre the whole trade became partly. There are 11 places I found during my research which claimed for themselves once during the course of human history to possess the foreskin of Jesus as a relic. 11 times only in France alone. As you know, and I hope children are not listening, and hey, this is a podcast about wars and politics, you shouldn't have your small kids listen anyway, but as you know, the foreskin is not exactly the biggest part of the body, especially not for an eight-day-old baby. Because eight days is exactly the time when, even today in the Jewish faith, boys are circumcised. So how should the real foreskin of baby Jesus please be present more than a dozen times in Europe? But well, we digress. Bruno Fonchli limited himself to rather conservative relics. So Bruno had the bones of St. Everigisil brought to Cologne, what a name, more precisely to the church of St. Cecilia, which we already know near today's Neumarkt Square. Everigisil was a Cologne bishop from the late 6th century, so a few decades before Cunibert, who was martyred on a journey to Tongan in present-day Belgium. Today, his bones of Everigisil are in the directly adjacent church of St. Peter. Likewise, other bones or relic parts of martyrs found their way to Cologne, those of St. Eliphius and Patroclos, St. Gregory, St. Christopher, and those of St. Pantaleon. The latter, of course, came to the corresponding church named after him. The concentration of relics and artifacts made this city on the Rhine truly the Holy Cologne, in the eyes of the contemporaries at the time. Because whoever concentrated relics in one place also had the saints themselves in his midst, and thus one had a good connection to the very top. What exactly is to be understood by the term Holy Cologne or Sancta Colonia, I have already explained in a previous episode. Otherwise, just listen to the episode again. 
In such a time when pilgrimages became more and more important, especially economically, this concentration of relics, artifacts and church buildings made Cologne one of the main destinations in the Christian world, next to Rome and Santiago de Compostela. And that, of course, flushed a lot of money into the city, in addition to many visitors. Let's take a look at what else Bruno did to help the city achieve an enormous economic upswing, even in the long term, after he was long gone. Since the Franks came to power in Cologne, the Frankish Empire had actually been fairly simple in structure. Actually. For we are not talking here about a modern nation-state with firmly anchored institutionalized features, uniform laws or even a constitution. It was not even the rule that the eldest son of a ruler automatically succeeded his father. Emperor Otto himself was not the eldest son of his father Henry and Otto's son, with the same name, who was to succeed his father on the throne, was not the eldest son either. Rulership in the Middle Ages was based mainly on personal relationships. For a king to be successful, he needed not only such bizarre things as luck, fortune, an army and a suitable character to rule, but also the ability to keep the nobility in his own realm happy. For as exhausting as all these nobles were, in part, without them, unfortunately, it did not work. There was no other way to govern such a huge empire without a modern administrative apparatus. It just did not exist yet. Klotwig had already introduced so-called Gaue throughout the Frankish Empire in the late 5th century, quasi-districts in which counts carried out the official businesses for the king. Then, in the course of time, the dukes standing between the counts and the king emerged. So far it's actually quite simple, but you know that it's not. For Cologne, we often don't know whether this was really true. We do know of a Kölngau, a Cologne district, but hardly ever who was a count there. So that often the question arose, did this office of the count exist here at all, or did the bishop or later Archbishop of Cologne, governed the city and the surrounding area directly much earlier. While the biographies of Kunibert or also Hildebold always gave us the assumption that this was the case. But we never had a proof. This changed, however, with Bruno. Here we know unambiguously that he was also on the secular and on the political level as Archbishop at the same time, also Cologne's supreme city ruler. And how do we know that? Well, Bruno did something in his function that only the viceroy of the Holy Roman Empire, so Bruno, could do. Something that was to be groundbreaking for Cologne. In literature, this is always written in such an unwieldy way. Bruno detached Cologne's castle ban from the Cologne district. This means that until now, one always had to wait until the king arrived here in person, for example, to pronounce justice. But now this right was transferred directly to the Archbishop of Cologne, who was always around here, in the near vicinity, after all. From now on, the Archbishop of Cologne was allowed to pronounce law in the city. Thus, 
He was like the king of the city in terms of power. This now immediate rule, of course, expedited trials and above all prevented the typical piling up of disputes and requesting hearings before the royal court as was often typical when the king or his officials stayed away for long periods of time and stayed in other regions of the empire. This may sound strange to some, but it had lasting consequences for Cologne and its development. The word Castleban or in German Burgban is linguistically confusing from today's perspective. Cologne was not a castle, was it? At that time, the German word Burg did not just mean a medieval castle on a mountain with a wall and a keep as it does today or is translated into castle in English today. It also simply meant town or fortified place. It could also be a village with a trench and a wooden palisade or a large city walled with stone. Some historical sources therefore also called the city, often modified something like Kölnburg or Cologne Castle in English. There are many places in Germany that have a suffix with Burg today, so that the word ends with the word Burg. Otto's pronounced city of Magdeburg, for example, or Würzburg, but also Siegburg, which was later located near Cologne. Therefore, it is not surprising that the southern suburb of Cologne, at that time with the Church of St. Severin and St. John Baptiste, was called Oversburg. We already discussed Oversburg in an earlier episode. And the name of the place, therefore, means just outside the city. From the versatile word in German, Burg, that we translate with castle in English nowadays, also arose at the same time the designation for the inhabitants of a city, Bürger or Bürgerinnen, meaning citizens. Okay, we are a little bit off now, and if you don't speak German, all those prior sentences probably make not a lot of sense to you, but I know that many Germans are still preferring my English version and not the German version of this podcast, so, so that's why I put it in here. But the concept of castle, or German Burg, is important for that time. So Bruno puts in his place as a judge in the city the Burggraf, the castle count, who lived in his residence, the Burghof, or castle court. For even an archbishop had a lot to do and could not attend court all day. The street Burghöfchen, near the Schildergasse, which is well known to us since it has been the west-east main street of Roman Cologne, still reminds us of the residence of this archbishop's judge. It was just as significant that Bruno did not only extend his castle band, the Burgbann, to the previous city area within the Roman city wall, he also included the harbour suburb, which we had already dealt with here a few episodes earlier. This was this densely built-up harbour district that had developed on the areas of the former Rhine island that had been silted up since late antiquity. This is the area between today's Heumarkt and Altermarkt and the Rhine, which is nowadays referred as the Old Town or the Martins Viertel, Martins Quarter, as the people of Cologne would say. 
The fact that this quarter is called Martin's Quarter is also a consequence of Bruno's work. Here, the Archbishop founded another monastery, which shortly thereafter became a Benedictine monastery. A church located here must have existed before, but was probably rebuilt or expanded during Bruno's time. This building activity was also completed only after Bruno's death in 985. The new church was dedicated to St. Martin. According to the legend, St. Martin gave half of his coat to a poor man on the roadside. Every school child in Germany knows that story. Since there was later to be another but smaller church in Cologne, which also had St. Martin as its patron saint, this church on the banks of the Rhine was called Great St. Martin, because it was the larger, the bigger one. With the expansion of the Burgbann, the castle ban, this harbour suburb had thus officially become part of the city of Cologne, which of course only made absolute sense. Why should the populated area lying directly between the Rhine and the Roman city, the former Roman city area, not belong to the city? Because then Cologne, which was still surrounded by its Roman city wall, would have been separated from its own harbour. That makes no sense. This also ensured a noticeable economic upswing of the city, in addition to targeted settlements of craft businesses by Bruno and also the granting of the right to mint and market to the Archbishop of Cologne. Now things could be decreed directly on the spot when and how often markets took place without always having to go the lengthy ways via the emperor or king. From now on, the archbishops of Cologne could dispose of taxes and duties just as freely, and they could also reinvest them directly locally on the spot. The later history of Cologne will always emphasize how much the archbishop would be in conflict with the rich citizenry of Cologne in later times. But in fairness, however, we should not forget that they, the archbishops in turn, had previously done much to make this city on the Rhine so rich and powerful in the Middle Ages. Of course, the archbishops had not done this out of local patriotism or for the city, but for their own expansion of power, but so be it. The church and basilica Great St. Martin still stands today and dominates the Cologne cityscape with its mighty silhouette like hardly any other church. Well, only Cologne Cathedral is even more striking. But just like today's Cologne Cathedral, the present church of Great St. Martin is a new building from later times, namely from the 13th century. In the first episode about Bruno, I emphasized one thing many times about him. Unlike the rest of his family, Bruno was someone his big brother, Emperor Otto I, could always rely on. During Otto's long absences, Bruno served as guardian for his son of the same name, later Emperor Otto II. During his father's lifetime, he was anointed German king by Bruno as Otto II in Aachen. This was to ensure that after the death of Otto I, the succession was settled. Bruno had his imperial brother's previous palace south of the old cathedral magnificently restored, you know, those Falzen, 
so that he also had all the amenities for himself and his entourage during his visits to Cologne. The king or emperor at this time did not stay in a fixed capital, but traveled almost continuously through his empire to rule it from the saddle of his horse. To be able to get off the saddle and enjoy some comfort in Cologne, Otto gladly accepted the offer several times. A total of seven visits of the emperor with his entourage are historically documented and handed down in the years between 953 and 965. That was, for one place alone, quite a lot of imperial visits for that time, especially if we look at the end that Bruno was not so long Archbishop of Cologne, namely only 12 years, just those years from 953 to 965. Those who know a little more about the history of the rulers of the East Frankish-slash-Holy Roman Empire will know that until the middle of the 10th century, Cologne was actually far off the beaten track when it came to receiving emperors or kings inside the city wall. Cologne was important, sure, but the royal rulers of the empire preferred their palaces in the countryside or in their own respective foundations. Charles the Great, for example, some 200 years earlier, loved his palaces of Pfalzen in Aachen, Paderborn or Ingelheim in the region around Cologne. Cologne itself, however, had never been among them. Charles the Great had indeed visited Cologne, but only when he absolutely had to, and usually only as a stopover for a journey through. Under Bruno, however, Cologne's role as a residential city changed abruptly. From now on, here in the middle of the 10th century, emperors and kings would visit Cologne frequently, until the end of the Holy Roman Empire in the early 1800s. The high point of Bruno's tenure as Archbishop of Cologne was certainly the year 965, when the entire who-is-who of medieval Europe came to Cologne over the Pentecost holidays. In addition to the emperor and his son Otto II, the widowed French Queen Gerberga also came with her son, the reigning king of France, Lothar. Thus, Carolingian rulers now paid homage to the Holy Roman Emperor here in Cologne. Of course, other suffragan bishops who were subjects to the Archbishopric of Cologne were present at the meeting as well. So those bishops from Utrecht, Liege, Münster, Osnabrück and Minden. Then also the archbishops from Trier and from Reims in France came, as well as other countless ecclesiastical and secular dignitaries from all over. Cologne had never experienced such a hustle and bustle, a kind of medieval EU summit in Cologne, more or less. But let's let the sources speak here. The Vita of Bruno, which the priest Rudger wrote shortly after Bruno's death. Perhaps priest Rudger himself was present at the event in Cologne in 965. This is not an impossible thing to think about. Maybe he was really here. But keep in mind that someone writes here who praises the Archbishop of Cologne throughout his work, which was also the goal of, his, of this biography. You will shortly know what I mean. So, what does the good Rudger report to us? Quote, 
When the emperor was in such very holy zeal in the thirtieth year of his reign and his brother in the twelfth year of his episcopate and was scarcely forty years old, they celebrate together the holy feast of Pentecost in Cologne. Greater glory is not given to mortals than they showed to each other between the holy celebrations of the festive days. Present with them was the exalted mother, the royal sister, the royal nephews and sons, the whole godly family and all the dignitaries of the realm. Indeed it is certain that no place is ever shone by such solemnity, such splendor of people of all ranks, ages and titles. This union of the most glorious emperor and his brother, the greatest and incomparable man, Archbishop Bruno, this faithful and godly union in all will and action, this agreement for all the benefit and piety of administration and charity, this delightful communion of life and of all duties was torn asunder by death, terrible death, separated, I say, by death alone. And truly, though nothing seemed more terrible, nothing could have severed this union in a more innocent manner. End quote. What should these last sentences mean which ruled Galizzi about the relationship between Otto and Bruno? Well, unfortunately, the year 965, the year in which Bruno was at the head of his power, was also the last year of his life. Why? Well, to that we devote ourselves after a short break. Bruno was one of the most important archbishops of Cologne. But he did not work in the city and in the archbishopric of Cologne for an extra long time. Almost everything that I have told you here about his work as a city ruler, Duke of Lorraine and Archbishop of Cologne, with other foundations, reforms and so on, he achieved alone in the years 953 to 965. So only in 12 years. Along the way, he also ruled in phases as Viceroy of the Holy Roman Empire and part-time as a regent in France. It was Bruno who, by combining the two offices of Archbishop of Cologne and that of Duke of Lorraine, in the medium term also made a political player out of the previous ecclesiastical Archbishopric of Cologne. An Archbishopric that now exercised also secular power in the Rhineland and in parts of what is now Westphalia. The so-called electorate of Cologne would later emerge from that, that part of the archbishopric where the head of Cologne, the archbishopric of Cologne, also exercised secular power and appeared as an imperial prince on the stage of power in the empire. Thus, from now on, there were three entities with the name Cologne. I know, that doesn't make it any easier. First of all, there was of course the city of Cologne, the urban center, the place on the Rhine that this podcast is about. Then there was the Archbishopric of Cologne, which had its seat in that city on the Rhine, but covered a large area in what is now northern Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium and parts of northern France which had to be administered 
spiritually, appoint, appointing bishops, priests, and making services and building churches, etc. And then there was the later called electorate of Cologne. Those places and regions on the Rhine and what is now Westphalia, where the Archbishop of Cologne was not only in charge as the highest priest, but acted like a secular prince, like a duke, or sometimes like a king, and thus exercised both spiritual and secular power, being the Archbishop of Cologne, the lord of those regions and to those people. This was the electorate of Cologne. This term, electorate of Cologne, derives from the fact that in later times, at the end of the High Middle Ages, it was said that there should only be seven men who were allowed to elect the emperor when the old emperor had died. And one of them was the Archbishop of Cologne. So that's why it was later called the Electorate of Cologne. Yes, I know everything is much too complicated, and I will gladly explain it again and again at the appropriate place. But just to summarize, the city of Cologne was everything of those three things at that time. Of course, the city itself. It was part of the Archbishopric of Cologne, because the Archbishop resided in the city. And, of course, it was part of the Electorate of Cologne, with the Archbishop being the city ruler as well. Of course, it was not only Bruno's merit that this development took place, making the Archbishops of Cologne powerful princes of the Holy Roman Empire. The same took place in other bishoprics and archbishoprics of the Holy Roman Empire, because Emperor Otto I also wanted and encouraged bishoprics to gain political power. Why? Well, I have explained that two episodes before. Easier allocation of offices by the king, since bishoprics were not hereditary, you know. But if you forgot, well, just go two episodes back. But why did Bruno die in his 12 years as Archbishop of Cologne? Well, Bruno had always had a good relationship with France. In 965, therefore, he traveled to Reims in France to carry out a diplomatic mission. Now, at that time, there were no highways, no autobahnen, no fast trains like the TGV or air travel by Air France or Lufthansa. Travel was very hard over dilapidated Roman roads, dirt roads, temporarily impassable roads due to weather events like floods, etc. And even in a carriage or wagon, this was no walk in the park. On the return journey of this diplomatic mission, the good Bruno, who must have been a workaholic after all, became so tired that he died, surprisingly, at the age of only 40 years. Of course, this was an age at which it was not unusual to die in the Middle Ages. Everyone was aware that from that age on, death could always be lurking around every corner. But still, the death of the great and powerful Bruno must have been surprising for the people of the time. When Bruno's traveling party reached the western city wall of Cologne with his body, he was first laid out for a few days in the still unfinished church of St. Andrew. After all, the deceased himself had been responsible for the construction so far. Then the body was laid out in the old cathedral, the predecessor building of today's Gothic Cologne Cathedral. 
there the Cologne Cathedral chapter had actually hoped to bury the archbishop in the crypt under the cathedral, as was customary now. But even after Bruno's death, his will continued to be valid, and so, as written in his own will, Bruno was buried in the Benedictine monastery of San Pantaleon in the crypt, the monastery that he himself had once founded and from where he had once begun his journey as Archbishop of Cologne and Duke of Lorraine. Many more powerful and important Archbishops of Cologne would enter the stage of history who had a significant influence on the history of Europe and the Empire. But with the exception of one, hardly any other Archbishop would have a similar amount of power as Bruno in his years from 953 to 965. The fact that the office of Archbishop of Cologne was linked to that of Duke of Lorraine was only a one-time thing. Emperor Otto I was to outlive his significantly younger brother by another eight years. But not only did he award the ducal title for Lorraine to other men, he also definitively divided the Duchy of Lorraine into two parts, into a northern and a southern one. Bruno himself, but only for purely administrative purposes, had already divided the great Central European Duchy during his lifetime in 959 in order to be able to administer it better. Nevertheless, Bruno had of course been the respective chief of both partial duchies. This division had long-term consequences. The northern part of Lorraine, to which Cologne belonged, rapidly disintegrated in the next period. The Archbishopric of Cologne, or rather the Electorate of Cologne, so the secular rule of territories by the Archbishopric of Cologne and other newer duchies succeeded to the territory. In the 12th century, the ducal title of Lower Lorraine was only a name, but no real means of power were connected with it. Soon, the title completely disappeared from history. The part of Southern Lorraine, Upper Lorraine, experienced a similar fate and gradually became the Lorraine region, by which we nowadays mean the area around the French city of Metz. Thus, the identity of the once great Carolingian Middle Kingdom of Lotharingia, or later called Lorraine, finally perished. Phew, that was long again. My tongue and my mouth are dry as a desert. It was a very long episode, I know that. But I know that you guys don't like second parts. That's why I put this review of Frankish Cologne in the middle between the first episode about Bruno and the second episode about Bruno. And I have to say this was one of my favorite episodes for a long time because this time I had to collect and grab all the different kinds of topics together into one episode. It was really hard to work on it, but I'm very happy about the outcome. But, well, that was a long episode and I've told you now everything that I want to tell you about Bruno's life and also his manifold influence on the city. Bruno is of course depicted as a historically significant figure on Cologne's town hall tower, together with other important citizens of the city. And not only once, but twice, 
Once, of course, as himself depicted as the powerful Archbishop of Cologne with the Church of St. Pantaleon at his feet, the church in which he was buried and where he found a monastery in. But Bruno can also be found on the figure of Emperor Otto I, who himself left a lasting impression of the city as well. There he is portrayed as his little brother, literally his little brother, because he stands in front of his bigger brother, but only half as tall, and holds in his hand a model of the Church of St. Apostles in his which was also his own foundation. I'll post pictures of both of them on social media and, of course, in the companion post to this episode on thehistoryofcologne.com. Next time, we won't jump so far forward in time. Actually, only a few years. Because Otto thought about something that even today many think about, his kingdom, the Holy Roman Empire. For many people make fun of the Holy Roman Empire to this day. Internet historians from Google University refer to quote from Voltaire, the French philosopher from the 18th century, where he calls this political entity neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. In doing so, these internet historians place themselves in a long tradition that was also carried out by the more nationalistically-minded European historians of the 19th century and early 20th century. In their opinion, only a centralized and above all ethnically homogeneous state could be good, and anything else would not. Only in recent times the opinion about the Holy Roman Empire is changing. Maybe not everything was bad about an entity that lasted over a thousand years and had many cultures, religions and peoples in it, peacefully living together, minding their own business but still having a roof on top that shared a common identity. At Voltaire's time in the 18th century, yes, the Holy Roman Empire had undoubtedly reached a dead end. It was unreformable, too politically fragmented and failing to meet the demands of modernity. But at that time it was already 900 or a thousand years old depending on where you see the starting point of the empire, at Charles the Great's time or at Otto's time. That is a proud age for a European empire, which is always portrayed as so insignificant in public until recent times. In Otto the first time, however, being holy, Roman and just an empire correspond exactly to these specifications. Because Emperor Otto was also a warrior of his Christian god, he had defeated the pagan Hungarians forever and permanently on the Lechfeld. He also kept the Muslim Saracens at bay. In Denmark, where once the fearsome and mighty Vikings raided the Rhineland and the East Frankish Empire, now the king bowed to Otto's military pressure and he had been baptized Christian and was in the process of converting his own subjects from paganism to Christianity, not only in Denmark, but in whole Scandinavia. The same applies to Poland and their rulers. Otto founded countless monasteries, churches and entire bishoprics and archbishoprics. Thus his empire had already more than lived up to the attribute holy for the contemporaries of that time. Otto had conquered Italy, 
The papacy in Rome was in close cooperation with Otto's empire and politically totally in his hands. From the Pope himself, Otto had had the Roman imperial dignity given to him in Rome, which had been vacant in Western Europe for decades. This also fulfilled the attribute Roman for the contemporaries of that time. The only thing still missing here is the attribute empire. But under Otto, the former East Frankish Empire, now the Holy Roman Empire, reached borders of previously unknown dimensions. It was not as large as the Western Roman Empire had once been, but it stretched from the coasts of the North and the Baltic Seas in the north to the Bay of Naples in the south of Rome on the Italian peninsula. To the west it lay deep in what are now the territories, some territories of France, the Netherlands, Belgium, all of Luxembourg and Switzerland. Especially in the east, great territorial gains had taken place under Otto's reign. What is now eastern Germany had been conquered and Christianization was in full swing there, by any means man could devise. Bohemia and Moravia, today's Czech Republic, were integral parts of the empire and would be until the end of the Holy Roman Empire. Likewise, areas of today's Austria with Vienna and parts of today's Slovenia formed the conclusion of the eastern border. Under Otto, the eastern border of the Christian West had been shifted far to the east of Europe and before that it only had been to the Elbe River in northern Germany. To this end, as already indicated, all directly adjacent territories were in a relationship that recognized Otto's claim as supreme ruler of Europe and his role as champion of Christianity. Francis King had been sheltered by Otto's brother Bruno and had traveled to Cologne in 965 to pay homage to the emperor. The rulers of Denmark, Poland, Hungary, those in Italy, the Pope and the southern Italian principalities such as Benevento, Capua and Salerno stood at attention when they thought of Otto for just one second. Within his empire, Otto had eliminated or pacified all rivals and who would have thought that at his rough start in 936. Important posts were occupied by his loyal followers, and even before his death, he had his son appointed to co-king and then even co-emperor by the Pope. So it is not surprising that Otto was already called the Great during his lifetime. So long story short, with this outro, this very, very long outro, and what all this has to do with Cologne, you might ask, well, if that was not a holy Roman Empire. What then, please? The Byzantine Empire, perhaps. The one in the Mediterranean. The one that had survived the fall of Rome as the former Eastern Roman Empire. Who said that? But, well, you are right, you heckler in the back. There was already a Roman Empire that continued without interruption. The Byzantine Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean. When at the end of the 4th century the Roman Empire was divided into East and West, Western Rome perished with the city of Rome as a world empire, ending antiquity in Western Europe and starting the Middle Ages. However, the Roman sub-empire in the East did not. It continued to exist as the Byzantine Empire, with its capital in Constantinople, today's Istanbul, 
for another thousand years. Okay, in this successor realm of the Romans, they spoke rather Greek instead of Latin, but the knowledge of antiquity, Christian theology, all the civilizational achievements of antiquity, but also the continuity as the heir of Rome were given here in the East, in the Byzantine Empire. And hadn't Constantine the Great once moved the capital of the empire from Rome to the East, that is, to Constantinople, the capital of present-day Byzantine Empire? This circumstance gnawed at Otto, since he claimed the Roman imperial title for himself. According to Western European theology, there could only be one Roman Empire, not two. Therefore, Otto desperately wanted the recognition of the Byzantine Empire, to which his own Holy Roman Empire now even directly bordered here in southern Italy, because the Byzantine Empire also had possessions there. How this was to be done? Quite simply. So simply according to medieval standards, of course. The daughter of the Byzantine emperor should simply marry Otto's son, the later Otto II. Thus the recognition would be accomplished. East and Western Rome united in a common marriage. Of course, only symbolically and not in terms of real politics. And so, in 972, a Greek princess arrived in Rome. Otto I resided in the Eternal City at that time and was eagerly awaiting this high-ranking guest from Constantinople. This 12-year-old girl was named Theophanu. She must have received the culture shock of her life when she arrived in medieval Germany or already in medieval Rome, which was just a shadow of its former self compared to antiquity. The aged Emperor Otto noticed immediately upon her arrival that the young Theophanu was not all the hoped-for Byzantine princess whom he had ordered quite patriarchalistically at the Byzantine imperial court. The aged Emperor Otto noticed immediately upon her arrival that the young Theophanu was not at all the hoped-for Byzantine princess whom he had ordered quite patriarchalistically callistically at the Byzantine imperial court. But Otto did not care. He had what he wanted. With Theophanu, he had the Byzantine princess from Greece. Be it. As if anyone north of the Alps would notice that she was only the daughter-in-law of the reigning emperor in Constantinople and not his biological daughter. Otto's subjects were all just stupid peasants anyway. Not to feel insulted and just send Theophanu back to Constantinople where she would have been spending the rest of her life in an orthodox monastery because she was, she was declined as an imperial bride, that was a very wise decision on Otto's part. Because for Theophanu, still very young, was not only an extremely educated and clever personality, she would become one of the greatest rulers of the Middle Ages. And even in times of need, she would save Otto's empire from ruin. But that, then, in the next episode, when we will talk about this famous Cologne woman. So let's get to the support your favorite podcast about the history of Cologne part. 
subscribe and rate this channel where possible so others can enjoy my voice and the history of the city, like on Apple Podcast and more recently on Spotify. Hey, you listen to all this long episode. You must like what I tell you, so please, please give me that five-star rating that I beg you for right now. Follow me on social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or even TikTok. There you can find me as History of Cologne Podcast. On my homepage, I always have pictures and background information for every single episode, this one included. And also an interactive city map where you can see where places and buildings, etc. can be found in today's cityscape of Cologne so that you can visit them if you are around here. And in my link tree in the show notes, you can find other ways how you can support this podcast, my one-man show, my hobby in the evening and on the weekend. For example, booking my GPS-guided city tour through Rome Cologne. Have a look. I would be very happy. So, thanks for listening to this very long episode. I'm so sorry. Next time, I will make it shorter. Promised. And thank you again and auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>